Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Roger Pielke, Jr. Professor Pielke is attached to the Department of Environmental Studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder, but I suspect he's better known to many listeners of this podcast for his wide-ranging contributions to studying science and policy interactions, both in specific areas such as climate change and sports, and also more generally through books like The Honest Broker, which has been mentioned, I think, if not quite by the majority of guests on this podcast, and at least by a good number of them. So, Roger, I'm pleased to welcome you to the show. And uh, really, it's to my shame that it took me 18 episodes to fix up this conversation. I'm happy to be here. Great. So I'd like to talk today, at least at the outset, about what you've rather colourfully termed uh, shadow science advice. Um, but although I feel like I've been saying this a lot recently, you strike me as one of those people for whom we could really have picked any one of a dozen different topics within the remit of this podcast and still had an interesting discussion. And actually, maybe that's what we'll end up doing. I guess this is fair warning for listeners that this conversation might be a little more meandering than some others. Um, I guess at least partly because we're talking about an area which doesn't really have clearly defined boundaries. But let's at least set out with a little focus. Shadow science advice, what is it exactly and where do we start? Well, first, Toby, let me just say it's just great to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast and it's a pleasure to, to be chatting with you. And you're right, there's a lot we could talk about. It seems that science advice has finally met its moment, uh, unfortunately, during the pandemic. Uh, but one thing the pandemic shows pretty significantly, and this is a term that we're batting around in this in this big international project we have um, called, called shadow science advice, which refers to advisory processes, mechanisms, people, institutions that are outside uh, formal, typically government advisory bodies. Um, and, and it's not new. Uh, there has always been shadow science advice. But what we see under COVID in many places around the world is a competition between uh, what we might call inside advisors versus outside advisors. And so the issue of shadow science advice what it means for the science advice community, for the scientific community more generally, and for decision makers, uh, I think has really been highlighted uh, by, by the COVID experience. All right, so let's take our first diversion already because you, you name dropped a big international project and I think it's only fair for me to ask you what you're referring to. Yes, soon after the, the pandemic started, I was fortunate to have won an award from the US National Science Foundation to conduct uh, an international comparative assessment of the production and use of science advice um, in the pandemic. We have 16 countries, three additional case studies, and uh, including Hong Kong, uh, the WHO, and uh, interestingly, North Carolina in the United States. And what we're doing is we're not evaluating policy responses to the pandemic itself. We're evaluating science advisory processes that have been put in place to support response. Um, those projects are just now, the, the first drafts of reports are coming in. And across the world, really, the, the issue of shadow science advice is what we're calling it now. Um, it's an important one, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's ongoing. So is it shadow in the sense of uh, operating in the shadows, like channeling the dark side of the force? Uh, or is it more shadow in the sense that you might have um, an opposition party uh, minister shadowing a government minister with the same kind of portfolio, but without the the, the constitutional power. Yeah, the, the original idea, um, I mean, my thinking in, in coining this term was it was much more like um, the opposition party in a parliament having a, a, a formal 
um, but not um, leading role. Um, but what we see is that there are science advisory mechanisms that exist in the shadows. Um, not all are well-meaning, not all uh, are upheld to uh, conventional standards of scientific integrity, as we've seen. So how, how to think about shadow, and, and really the project that I'm leading is shadow science advice. We're giving advice on advice. No one asked us to. <laughs> we weren't invited into the room. So it, it encompasses a lot of things. And in normal processes, when, when, when we publish in the scientific literature, we write op-eds or, or come on podcasts, um, we are offering shadow science advice of one sort or another. Um, it just so happens that in the pandemic, you know, there's a few things that are important that, you know, the whole world is experiencing it. So science advisory institutions are being put to the test everywhere. And we've seen the rise of shadow science advice across the, the spectrum. And I will say one of the most important things I think we can do in, in our project is to define a taxonomy of, of what we actually mean by shadow science advice. Um, because not all shadow science advisory mechanisms are created equal, as we've learned. Right. And I'm getting the impression it's not always uh, pejorative, right? Like like an opposition party isn't isn't a bad thing when it fights the government. Right, right. It's, it's not necessarily always a bad thing. And I would say it, it's important to have. Uh, so, for example, in the Netherlands, there's a formally established, uh, it's called a red team. I, I think that comes out of the military um, but the idea that you would formally impanel a group of, of uh, opposition experts to challenge the consensus view of, of formal experts. So it is important um, to have a mechanism to challenge expertise. And uh, just like it's important to have an opposition party in a parliament um, offering a different perspective. But at the same time, there are forms of shadow science advice that can be um, quite pathological to decision making. Um, and the pandemic has shown that also. Okay, so you mentioned trying to uh, define a, a typology of these things. So maybe let's start there. What kinds of different structures do you want to include under this umbrella of shadow science advice? Yeah, so I think it's, it's important to start with science advice. And as, maybe as we'll get to, that's not always the best term, but governments need expert advice on all sorts of topics. And we're familiar with committees typically that are impaneled to, to offer that advice. Um, and so Science advisory mechanisms are often uh, formalized, they're recognized, um, they have legitimacy and they have authority. Shadow science advice, by contrast, um, would be those advisory processes that exist outside the formal impanelment process uh, that a government might have. So it could be just as legitimate, just as authoritative, um, but just not be sanctioned by the decision makers who are the intended recipients of the advice. So, I mean, that would include bodies like the independent sage in the United Kingdom or the, the three um, academics in the U.S. and the U.K. who put together the Great Barrington Declaration, which many people have heard of related to the, the pandemic. Yeah, a formal science advisory body is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is uh, legitimized by the United Nations. And the climate world saw an opposition group form of um, skeptics to climate change who created a, a, a parallel group called the, the not the IPCC, NIPCC. So it's very, <laughs> very similar nomenclature to what we saw with the independent sage um, adopting a, a formal body. So, so there are these formal organized groups that come together to try to lend weight in advocacy, and usually it's policy advocacy. Sometimes it's based in science. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, you might just have very visible individuals who 
assert their point of view, um, offering advice, and because of their standing or their institutional affiliation, um, they get recognized as as shadow science advisors. And a good example of that in the United States was Scott Atlas uh, of Stanford, who um, came to prominence because of his appearances on Donald Trump's favorite TV news show, uh, Fox News. And he went from being a shadow science advisor to the leading pandemic advisor for Donald Trump. Um, and so we saw a move from shadows uh, out into the into the open. <laughs> yeah. So, so it sounds like there are at least some some examples you've mentioned where the shadow mechanism is created quite deliberately to to complement or, or throw shade on, no pun intended, on the formal side of things, and others where you want to use the term really quite generally to basically mean anyone who talks about science and policy in any forum at all, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that it's really important to understand is that well. Advisors do many different things, as you've talked about frequently on this podcast. But one of the things that we ask uh, expert advisors to do is to reflect upon um, what a literature or what a body of knowledge is telling us. Um, you know, what do we think climate change will do to the planet in 2100? Or what are the effects of closing schools uh, due to COVID? And if there is a substantial challenge presented to um, how that knowledge is assessed and or communicated, um, it may, in fact, reflect um, some flaws in the formal advisory process. Um, maybe there's experts who are not included. Maybe the, the the literature or knowledge being summarized is being done so incompletely. So, so an ability to challenge advisory processes um, is really important because uh, advisors aren't omniscient. But at the same time, these shadow advisory processes may um, be engaged in, in what I often call stealth advocacy, is that they're just using titles or authority of science to try to push for different policy options. We saw that, um, I think, with the Great Barrington Declaration, which was um, about achieving herd immunity. So no lockdowns, um, very much policy advocacy clothed in, in science. So it's a challenge because uh, it would be much easier if shadow science advice was was uniformly a bad thing, but it's not. We have to pay attention to it and, and, and see when it needs to be integrated uh, or, or combined with our formal processes uh, and when it's less helpful and even pathological. Well, hmm. I mean, just as a kind of uh, fact about the logic of belief, if I'm advocating for a particular policy position, it follows that I view the evidence as supporting that course of action, or at least, I guess, not opposed to it. Surely that's true, at least normally. I mean, I'm not going to campaign in good faith for something I believe the evidence can't support. So I wonder if it's not quite as easy to draw the line between science advice and, and stealth advocacy in that way. Because science advisors and advocates, at the end of the day, are doing the same thing, which is campaigning for what they think will work based on the evidence as they see it. There's a continuum there, right? I don't know what distinction you can draw between those who are just quote-unquote science advising and those who are pretending to do so, but actually just lobbying, as long as it's all been done in good faith anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is a challenge, not just for stealth advocacy, but also for just outright advocacy for certain policy positions. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, that decision makers, whether they're elected officials or bureaucrats, they generally want policy advice, right? And this is where it gets to the idea that, that science advice maybe isn't the right term. I mean, sometimes we do want to know what the dose response effect is of a chemical in the food supply or something like that. And, and we, it's very technical um, advice. But a lot of times what policymakers want to know is, you know, what could we do? And if we select among options, 
um, what are the potential consequences? It's widely known in the circles we run in that, that no body of science or knowledge dictates or determines a particular policy choice. Policy choices are always you know, much broader than an evidentiary base would suggest because um, policymaking is about combining values and, and knowledge and, and science. Although that's exactly the reason, uh, as I'm sure you know, that, that people often give talking about science advice as its own special thing that you can ring fence, that you have advisors who don't get involved in the values discussion, who don't get involved in the politics or the budgetary debates or whatever, um, who hold themselves deliberately apart from all that and just focus on the science. And you're suggesting that that, that ring fencing is unhelpful, are you? Yeah, absolutely. This came out of the recent House of Commons first report on science advice in the UK. One of the most important findings or discussions in that report was the fact that the SAGE uh, considered epidemiological and public health expertise, but it did not consider economics expertise. And it turns out that the, the main fault line in the politics of COVID uh, in the UK and around the world has been the trade-offs or perceived trade-offs between the economy and public health. And so if the expert body that you have that's providing advice doesn't do that integration of economics expertise and public health expertise, then all that's being done is decision makers are being provided a, a rich set of knowledge on public health um, and then left with the task of, well, you figure out how to integrate that with, with economics options, alternatives, consequences. Um, and, you know, it's a it's a extremely difficult task to put together public health and, and economics to come up with policy options. And uh, we shouldn't be surprised that things get boiled down in a cartoonish fashion to lockdown versus no lockdown, uh, because we experts didn't do the hard work of coming up with alternatives that might blend those. So that's why that's why I say, you know, it's it's really policy advice that experts um, in many cases should be looked to looking to to provide. Um, not just some ring-fenced idea of technical science advice, uh, because that's that's important, but it's um, decision-making has to integrate science advice with, with everything else. Yeah, sure. I mean, currently it does, of course. It's just integrated at a different level, so not at the level of the scientist, but at the level of the politician or policymaker. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, the integration is in the form of policy options. And so, um, I mean, we could ask, you know, where, where do policy options come from? Um, and it turns out that um, shadow science advice is, has been a, a very fertile source of alternative options to the ones that the government is putting together. But, it, you know, I think in terms of democratic legitimacy and public understanding, we'd be in a bit, little bit better situation if policymakers, um, prime ministers, presidents were able to say, here's the, the options that we're pursuing and here's the evidentiary base on which it came from. Um, to more clearly distinguish decision making from from the expert inputs, because you know, obviously you can make a lot of different decisions based on the same same evidence base. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. So let's talk specifically about these parallel science advice structures. Things like uh, I suppose independent Sage is the most obvious example of a mirror structure. So so Sage being a prominent advice committee in the UK, part of the emergency science advice structure there an independent sage being a parallel group set up by a former a former chief science advisor and the name presumably is meant to imply that sage proper is not independent so i don't know if if you want to be drawn on that specific case but but maybe in general is this something you think is happening more widely this kind of deliberately rival thing being set up and if it is 
Is it the appropriate response of a scientist or the scientific community to the perception that something is going wrong within the formal mechanism? Yeah, the, the independent stage is a really interesting case, not least because by independent, it means independent of government. But at the same time, it has appropriated the, the government's acronym, which is a delightful acronym, by the way, SAGE. It's, um, it's but, nice, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it really confers uh, the authority of the, of the group. But for the average member of the public, or even, I would think, the informed member of the public, understanding the difference between a SAGE group and an independent SAGE group would be extremely difficult. So immediately, the, the existence of the independent SAGE, so named, um, headed up by, by David King, former chief scientific advisor to the British government, that creates a delegitimization of the formal process. So that may or may not be the intent, but uh, clearly they are setting themselves up as a counterweight or a counterbalance in, in exactly the same way as the Great Barrington Declaration Group did to try to have political influence. This, this, I think, is something that we, we experts should talk about. Do we wish to be delegitimizing formal government scientific advisory processes? Do we want this to be common? Do we want every government science advisory body to have a counterpoint outside of government? Um, would it be better to try to reform the actual SAGE process in ways that the external scientists think would make it more robust or, or, or serve decision makers better? Um, these are really important questions, but I think um, one thing we've seen in the pandemic, and we've seen it in Sweden, we see it in the United States, we see it in a lot of places around the world, not everywhere, but a lot of places, the rise of these very formal, authoritative, very legitimate, um, credentialed scientists who decide that they want to, outside of government, challenge the policy or politics or, or scientific evidentiary base. Um, and that can be good and it can be bad. It's... it's, it's um, Again, we have to look at context and evaluate each case on its own merits. Okay, but evaluate it from what perspective? So, so you say that setting up independent SAGE delegitimizes SAGE. Well, that's one perspective. But from the point of view of someone like David King, well, he might say that he's simply highlighting that SAGE is not legitimate in the first place, or at least not as effective in specific ways as it should be. So I guess my, my point is, if you're a scientist looking from the outside and you see that the formal mechanism suffers from groupthink or political bias or missing expertise or even presumably like making big scientific errors, you can either keep quiet about it or you can speak up. So, I mean, we could talk in a minute perhaps about a scientist's personal response in terms of their own communication. But to dwell for a minute on the institutional question, you raise the question, but, but what do you think is the answer? I'm genuinely interested. Is it okay to establish a science mechanism as a counterbalance to the formal one or if not then what yeah i mean this is i mean this is part of what our project is about is to evaluate these sort of situations but i i can give you a very practical example um, in the united states the the centers for disease control the cdc has responsibility for public health communication to the american public and what we saw when the pandemic first emerged is that the the cdc was widely trusted based on opinion polls um, by Americans, um, no matter what their political persuasion was. Actually, Republicans had a slightly higher degree of trust than did Democrats. Following a campaign of really disinformation attack um, by politicians, but also by other experts, including the United States' own government experts, um, 
we saw that trust in the CDC drop precipitously in just a matter of months. I mean, and, and that, that I would say is, a, is a definitely a bad thing because responding to a public health emergency requires not that everyone becomes a public health expert, but they, they trust those who are. I mean, we can imagine what if the independent sage, instead of weighing in on school openings or lockdowns, what if they were an uh, anti-vax group? I mean, I think it would be very obvious for us to say um, they are really harming public health by, by spreading that, even if they have sincere beliefs that there's better approaches to vaccination or they don't believe in um, the safety of vaccines. I think it, it would be much easier for people to say, all right, well, that shadow science advisory group is actually harming public health. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I don't think we can go far enough to say that the independent SAGE has delegitimized uh, SAGE as, a, as an empirical matter. Um, the studies will have to be done and it's not clear how widely um, SAGE is understood. And, you know, SAGE has its own issues with its own experts going out to the media and speaking, you know, as a representative of SAGE and disentangling the, the complexities of experts speaking as individuals, as representatives of a committee, as members of a committee, becomes very complicated. But one thing that I think we can say with certainty, um, and we see this in the Netherlands, we see this in the US, we see this in the UK, that the response to COVID has become deeply politicized and science has been um, taken along with that. So um, this is a question going forward for these big um, emergencies. Uh, is it better? For an expert like a David King in the Independent Sage to, in real time, work to improve the formal process or to work outside of it, um, and I don't think that we have the answer to that. One thing is clear, though, is that the Sage that entered the pandemic and how it was structured and how it was working um, is not the Sage that is operating now. There's been a lot of institutional innovation, a lot of evolution, many of it very positive. So I, I don't, particularly on an event that unfolds over months and years. Um, I don't see really any problem of fixing the airplane as you're flying it, as complicated as that sounds. Yeah, so the, the question you mentioned of the, of the public profile of science advisors is an interesting area in itself. So, so as not to keep ragging on the Brits, I don't know if you're aware, listeners probably won't be, of the controversies that's been in, in, in Belgium recently. Um, I don't claim to be in possession of all the facts. I mean, I live here, but I follow these things largely through the English language media, so there might be... Uh, let's say, nuances that I'm missing. But as I understand it, there are several quite senior scientists, I think largely virologists, who have frequently taken to public platforms like newspapers and, of course, Twitter to comment on public health measures during the pandemic. And when I say comment on, I mean very often to criticise and suggest that they're not following the evidence and so on. Um, and they've sometimes had public disagreements with, with ministers and other public figures about this. And Belgium... Being a small country with a few too many governments, of course, many of these scientists are also part of various formal science advisory structures. So, so that's that. And then there was some fairly well-coordinated pushback uh, in the public domain a little while ago from a few different politicians essentially asking these scientists to stop freelancing, as it were. And, and they made a couple of arguments that I thought were interesting. So the first was basically, come on, you're being paid by the public purse. You have, a, you have an obligation to not sound off about your employer in public, kind of a professional thing. Um, and actually then it emerged that at least some scientists weren't actually being paid. And then, as I understand it, the government decided to take some of them onto its payroll subsequently, which I think is an interesting issue in itself. But anyway, then the second argument that politicians made was something like, we are trying here to maintain 
clear and consistent messaging to the public about the importance of following the rules. And it's kind of totally counterproductive to have this cacophony of seemingly equally authoritative voices challenging us and undermining us publicly all the time. So, so I mean, so okay, that was a very long background and I apologise. But it does strike me as a rather tricky problem because this idea that scientists, on the one hand, they might be employed as science advisors, but on the other hand, there's this sense that they have some kind of higher calling or responsibility to the evidence, like to the truth. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a really important question. And, and, and for expert advisory bodies to actually function, they need to be able to come up with a, a joint or, if possible, a consensus viewpoint on what the evidence shows, even with uncertainties, you know, distributions around values, areas of ignorance. And this often comes up, it's exactly the situation comes up when experts um, here in the United States are asked to testify before the U.S. Congress and provide expert testimony. And there's different roles that people can, can take. If, if you're the, the chair of a committee, um, your job when relating the work of the committee is to, is to relate that consensus or the, what the committee came up with. Um, you are not there to testify um, or offer your view as an, you know, well, the committee said X, but let me tell you what I really think. Um, that's, that's not the, the role. Um, interestingly, um, the Biden administration, one of the proposals they've had for um, government scientists in the U.S. is um, to open up the possibility for offering dissenting views in such reports. So it, it's perfectly reasonable for uh, a committee, you know, with a diverse group of people with egos and, and a lot of knowledge to have differing views. Um, and I think it is important for policymakers to know where where are their areas of agreement and consensus and where and why are there areas of disagreement. So, so I do think, you know, that's, that's all fine underneath a, a formal advisory body. I do think that there are some issues when members of an advisory body either disagree with the conclusions or want to go out and freelance, as you say, um, on their own. I, I think there's some choices there. They can choose to resign from the expert advisory committee. I think if you if you choose to remain, it's always important for these experts to say, well, look, here's here's what the committee came up. Here's the consensus view. I depart from it for these reasons. Um, it's a little more nuanced, a little more subtle, but I think it's also responsible. There's no point in having an expert advisory committee to come up with a perspective on a topic using the tools of science if immediately after it's disbanded, everybody's going to go out and offer their own view. Um, we've seen this just early this year with the, the WHO uh, committee that went to China to investigate the origins of coronavirus. Um, they had a, a press conference, offered the viewpoint of the committee, then everyone went home to their home countries and did media interviews contradicting or reinforcing what was said at the, the press conference. And so what to believe? I don't know. You don't know. It's 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 kind of a mess. So, so there are some pretty weighty responsibilities that go with being a formal science advisor that um, the independent scientists speaking on their own just doesn't have. Um, and I think that's that's important to recognize. Well, just as an aside, I'd add that something that we're really used to in European politics in general, never mind science advice, uh, the phenomenon of, of 27 national leaders meeting behind closed doors to agree a common line, which is then duly communicated as the outcome of the meeting. And then each of those leaders going home or sometimes not even going home, just like walking out of the meeting room and finding a journalist from their own country and then giving 
27 different national perspectives on what was said or done. So this is, is not just limited to science advice. But anyway, I think you addressed one possible scenario, which is when science advisors meet and come to a consensus view in their official capacities, and then they go out and undermine that. Um, but the, there's another, which is more what I think was happening, uh, at least here in Belgium, which is that the consensus view is reached and handed over to policymakers, and then the scientists go out and criticise the policy decisions that are taken in response to the evidence that they gave. So it's really not the scientists disagreeing with each other or with the common line, but more claiming that the common line was not correctly used by the politicians. And that's a slightly different case, I think. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And, and I mean, this is where it's really important for experts and advisors to understand their role in, in democratic systems of governance. Uh, advisors advise and decision makers decide. I do feel strongly that if you take on a position as an advisor, then you are uh, either formally or, or tacitly agreeing to step back from the politicking. Being an advisor is a is a pretty significant and important role in democratic systems of governance, and you know citizens can advocate for whatever policy they want, but again, it is very delegitimizing of the democratic process for advisors to try to wear two hats at once to be both an advisor, whether advising on facts or giving policy options, um, and then outside of that role, politicking. Uh, for a particular political or policy outcome. I, I think it's very hard to, to reconcile. Um, there's no one is forced to be an advisor. They can choose to. Um, and I think with that comes some responsibilities. And just because you provide advice, and again, having advice with impact means that the decision makers hears your advice. They consider it. It doesn't mean that they make this or that particular decision. Um, advice could be rejected for all manner of reasons, as you know, we talked about, you know, economics versus public health. Um, decision makers may choose to side on one side or the other. The evidence doesn't dictate that. So I think advisors have to be very careful and uh, a bit um, circumspect in how they engage politics outside of their advisory roles. Okay. And I think I can hear the answer to this one coming, but still, do you think it makes a difference uh, as regards their employment status, paid or unpaid? Well, I think there are Formal government advisory committees that are established under law that work for ministries or, or agencies um, where there is a very high, I think, a very high bar for expectations for, for behavior. Um, there are, are more informal. So the SAGE being a, a UK government advisory committee um, is staffed by volunteers, for instance. Um, in the United States, the US National Academy of Sciences, which is a quasi-governmental body, um, puts together committees which are largely volunteers. I think less important than being paid or not paid is the the authority that's vested in the committee. Um, so, you know, the independent sage and being independent from government, you know, its its members can do whatever they want without much criticism because there's no expectation that they're actually serving in any formal advisory role. They're a group of individuals who came together. So I would hold them to a different standard than SAGE. I would hold SAGE to a different standard than, say, um, you know, the Climate Change Committee that serves uh, the British government that's made up of, um, of, of government officials. So it, again, it just depends on the, I think, the, the formal stature of the committee itself, not who's paying the bills. I wonder if there's a broader question here about uh, public discourse as a political tool. This did actually cross my mind very recently because I saw something on social media which was kind of pointing in the other direction when a scientist was complaining that ministers were conducting 
uh, as they put it, science by press release, that a minister would receive some report or study and they would immediately publish it to shore up their political position without it having been evaluated by science advisors or any kind of formal position being taken. And I guess, of course, this kind of tactic is, is part of the toolbox of every politician in a democratic society and even more so every lobbyist. Right? If you can't change an elected representative's mind about an issue directly, then you try and take it public and, and force their hand in a different way. I wonder if you think this is sometimes what's happening when you see one side being a scientist or, or politicians taking to public forums to set out their stall without first consulting or kind of aligning with the other. Yeah, I think I think this is exactly correct. I think uh, for advisory mechanisms to work, it's it's a dance and it requires two partners. You need advisors willing to give advice and you need decision makers or politicians willing to receive advice. And if it breaks down on either side, it, it can break down the entire process. Um, and obviously science is a strategic and tactical asset in political debates, quite independent of the substance of that science. So, of course, we will see politicians who have their mind made up, they know what they want to do, um, who will um, try to evade or abuse an advisory process to come up with uh, uh, more political pressure for the option they want. That's the reality of democratic processes. Um, and this is why I think it's so important to actually uphold formal advisory processes and why I am concerned about organizations like the Independent Sage. Because if we don't show respect for formal advisory processes, we being experts outside the system, um, it becomes very difficult for us to say that politicians should show more respect. So again, th th there is something unique, um, special, privileged about expert advisory bodies in democratic systems, um, but it requires um, you know, a shared supporting infrastructure to keep it um, viable, to keep it legitimate, um, and have the authority to actually give advice. Um, advisory processes won't always give advice that is used. It won't always be good advice, but you know, I think everyone should agree that we are better off with advice, even if it's uncomfortable, than we are without it. So that's why I think that um, building up and sustaining advisory processes is, is an important task that we experts have who are outside process, even if we disagree with how governments make, make use of those processes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It strikes me as a big ask of the scientist and one that isn't at the moment very often made explicit. That's a whole kind of skill set on its own that you want someone who's not just a great scientist and extremely well informed, but who also really cares passionately about the policy implications of the evidence that that's in their area and wants to invest themselves deeply in bringing that to fruition. But at the same time, someone who's willing to just sit on their hands and bite their tongue. So sorry for the strange metaphor. Um, whenever they see that translation from science to policy going wrong. That's quite a profile you're looking for. Absolutely. It's, you know, in, in the House of Commons report, the first report on science advice in the, in the UK, one of the recommendations, and it's a good recommendation, is that um, elected officials and um, decision makers in government should become more educated about science, how science works, and the processes of science. I think that's all good advice. What we often don't hear, however, is that the experts themselves, the advisors, they need a parallel sort of training and understanding and understanding how politics works. Um, because if you're going to be operating in a very political situation, and let's, you know, let's just, science advice at the highest levels is a very political process. Understanding 
not just the to and fro of politics, but the demands of democratic governance and what it means to be an advisor in democracy, um, I think is absolutely essential. I, I tell my students one of the, the most important things they can do um, as they become experts and want to become advisors is, um, I use the phrase, make peace with democracy. We, we, for the most part, many of the listeners to this podcast, um, the UK, the US, um, live under governments that are elected by the people and can make decisions any which way. They're not technocracies. They're not um, led by experts. Um, but at the same time, we want experts to have a say. And each expert having an understanding of what that means in terms of both responsibility, um, in terms of their practices, I think is absolutely essential because ultimately the, the people who are elected make the decisions. And those of us who have specialized knowledge can help to inform them and, and empower them, but we don't make those decisions. And knowing the difference is, I think, the key to, to successful advice. So I can't resist then. Does it follow from what you're saying that when you have President Trump standing at the presidential podium and suggesting we should all drink bleach to fight coronavirus and you have the science advisor sitting in the corner squirming that you're on Trump's side, that she should sit and squirm? No, not at all. Um, so in that situation, um, I mean, it, it's really, so there was, in particular, there were two advisors there, Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. Yeah, it was um, Deborah Burks I'm thinking of. She was the one where the camera zoomed in on her face in, in, in the little video clip of that press conference. Yeah, yes. And so, so it's really important to understand she was a political appointee. So in the U.S. system, she was selected by Trump to advance Trump's interests. And, and her choice was one very much of, do I want to support the political agenda of this person? Or, you know, resignation is always an option. I, I think, you know, my, my critique, which I've written about of uh, Dr. Burks was she should have resigned her position given, given that. Um, but in contrast, Anthony Fauci, who's also quite well known as a, as a government, but he's a government scientist. He's a career employee. He had no political role. So, he, I mean, he, he spoke very candidly about um, serving under Trump and um, calling things like he sees them, but not going out of his way to quit or get himself fired. These are all very delicate situations that um, this is why developing a, a robust understanding of roles and responsibilities before you find yourself in such a situation is, is absolutely essential. But I feel very strongly that if someone is working for government or they're on an advisory committee and they ethically or morally can't support the actions of that committee or the leadership that they're serving, they have an obligation to step aside and, and to explain why. It's difficult and it's a difficult choice, but um, definitely uh, the Trump administration presented a whole slew of challenges to science advisory mechanisms that I don't think um, we've talked about very much or even foreseen. Um, the idea that decision makers would actively seek to undermine or oppose wholesale, their experts. Every U.S. administration has had its conflicts involving science, but nothing like what was seen in the Trump administration. Hopefully never again. But Well, I think it's symptomatic in general of the Trump administration. One thing that struck me about the situation throughout, not just science advice, but like the way things went in general, was that an awful lot of the the good governance practices that characterized America that we'd hitherto in assumed were institutionally or constitutionally, I guess, baked in, as it were, turned out not to be. That They were just kind of norms of behavior that presidents had always followed. And when you have a president who's not inclined to follow them, 
well, then the institutions really start to wobble. Yeah, I, I mean, it's clear the Trump administration um, did not follow many of the norms that its predecessors did in um, both in governing and in the use of advice. But there are some structural issues that, that have come up. So, for example, on economics in the United States and in the UK and in many places around the world, um, expert advisors are put on a committee like in the United States, it's the Federal Reserve Board where they have fixed terms that are um, offset from the, the electoral calendar so that experts have some sort of independence. Um, and it's been raised that, well, maybe we need a public health board where we have experts that are independent. Because one of the things, and I'm, I'm leading the US case study for our escape project, um, and one of the things that is abundantly clear, and this, this even predates the Trump administration, um, the US government was not well prepared to organize and provide advice for a pandemic going in. And so when the Trump administration you know, had no interest in advice, it, it simply didn't have to do anything and that advice wouldn't be forthcoming. And so if, for example, if the US government had a public health board of 16 members serving you know, 10 year terms, staggered terms, um, that body would exist whether or not the Trump administration had wanted it. Um, so it just raises questions about, you know, on what topics do we want to institutionalize more independent expertise um, and in what situations do we want it to be more ad hoc yeah so then let's think about the role of political advisors and appointees um i think i've learned over the past four years that the u.s government has far more of these in senior positions than i could ever have imagined but still i think it's clear that anyway a politician can have multiple sources of advice right in any area of their work not just scientific advice um but there have been complaints sometimes about the illegitimate, supposedly, involvement of political appointees with a science background or otherwise in providing advice at the highest level. So Trump is an example we've mentioned. Is there an argument for, and is it even possible, I guess, to, to, to try and keep science advice, as it were, pure, meaning that politicians should forbear from taking advice specifically on science from sources other than the institutional advisory system. Does that even make sense as an expectation? Does it even make sense as a concept? It, 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 well, it makes sense and it doesn't make sense. So of course, science advice is never pure. It's never separate. And indeed, we want it to be integrated with politics and values. Um, that said, there are better and worse ways to organize how we, how we collect that advice, how we impanel the experts. So I'll give you an example. In the United States, the top advisory body for advice on climate change um, is established in, in law by Congress to sit in the White House. So it is by its very nature headed up by political appointees. And so it has always been somewhat a, a politicized body under Bill Clinton, under George Bush, under Barack Obama, or under Donald Trump, as you would expect. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be devolved very much into the bowels of the bureaucracy led up by career scientists or, or outside scientists. So the decision to have it have a political lead is a choice that we made in that instance. I think it's a bad choice. So there are different ways to get advice to make it more or less insulated from the, the, the uh, imposition of, of a political agenda. Um, politics will always be there, but we can choose to be more or less politicized. Um, and there are some issues, and climate change perhaps is one in the United States, that are so deeply political that the politicians don't want to let go. They don't want to allow experts who may be independent to, to weigh in with their own independent judgment because it may be inconvenient or uncomfortable to their agenda. Yeah, 
Quite. I mean, what's to stop a politician picking up the phone to their favourite advisor when they feel like it anyway? So it sounds like you're describing more a way to make sure that the formal science advice mechanism is there and can have an effective input and gets heard, rather than a way to try and make sure it's the only source of advice, which I guess is not really ever going to be possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. There's there's this dance, this balance to achieve between you know democratic imperatives and technical guidance and sometimes technical control. Um, I mean, we wouldn't want just to say you know a politician can call up their best friend to run a nuclear power plant, right? We we want want uh, qualified experts to do that. Um, when any of us would go in for surgery, you know, we're not going to say, all right, you know, I want my best friend to do it. You'll say, I want a, a doctor to do it. But achieving that balance in democratic settings, where, as you say, Donald Trump, you know, he called up Scott Atlas at Stanford. Stanford sounds like a prominent place to me, so he must be an expert because he saw him on Fox News and brought him in as his chief pandemic advisor to the exclusion of everyone else. That's his right as president. But I think those of us who are engaged in policy and the implementation of policy also have to suggest, well, maybe that wasn't the best way. <laughs> Even though it was democratically responsive, it was probably from a policy standpoint, pretty damaging to the country. So achieving that balance of you know where we want to usurp democratic um, imperatives in, in favor of technical control. Um, again, there's no right answer. It's, it's part of the democratic process, but I'm sure we can all come up with situations where we say, you know, no way we're going to give up control of that nuclear power plant to, or, you know, control the military to, to um, just anybody. It's, you know, we, we want experts in those seats. Well, you're the country that elects your commander in chief. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, okay, we've covered a lot of ground. We, we've talked about uh, parallel structures and freelancing scientists and, and political appointees. If you had to sum it all up, which indeed you do, what do we basically need to understand about what you're calling shadow science advice? What's the take-home message from all this? Yeah, I would just say that we live in an era where we're teaching students and we talk all the time about science communication, about the importance of experts being out there. And I think it's important to understand that that all of us, you know, once you go on a podcast, you start your blog, you talk to the media, we're all engaged in shadow science advice. That's that's you know, that's another name for this big field of science policy or science communication. And um, on the one hand, you know, a lot of times we think of it as, um, you know, we're, we're putting knowledge out there into the world, making a better place. Um, and I would just encourage all of us experts to, to step back a moment and think about not just what we're putting out there, but our responsibility in those systems. Um, I think it's great. I think that, you know, as citizens, we should all be engaged. Um, but again, there's better and worse ways to do that engagement. Um, one of the things we've seen, and this is from the work of Thomas Piketty, um, the economist in in France, um, is that there's more and more um, in Europe, in the UK, in the US, a split between people with more formal education, more credentials versus the population at large. So as we become more and more engaged, more political engaged in shadow science advice, we have to understand that um, the political context that we're doing this in um, is seeing a, a, a split between the highly educated and the rest of the population. And I think that foreshadows some challenges to the role of experts in society, because we want to maintain legitimacy. If there's one thing that's characterized you know, science for decades, again, in Europe and the U.S., is a lot of respect and trust among the general public for what we do. Um, and it would be pretty easy to lose that if we're seen as you know, favoring one side of the political spectrum. So, again, how we engage the public 
through advisory mechanisms really matters, I think. Hmm. Well, no argument from me on that. So I'm pleased that this conversation has, uh, in a way, been exactly as meandering as I hoped it would be. So Professor Roger Pielka, Jr., thanks so much for your time and, uh, and come back anytime. Thanks, Toby. It was fun. We covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.